0: And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod.
1: Like mostly everybody else, I was transfixed the other day when uh, General Michael Flynn walked into the courthouse in Washington and pled guilty for lying to the FBI, the latest episode in this ongoing Russia investigation. But unlike everyone else, I had the good fortune of having set up in advance uh, through Pure Happenstance, a podcast with Preet Bharara, who uh, had uh, some role to play in the beginnings of this investigation as the former uh, U.S. attorney from the Southern District of New York, which is a center of high-profile prosecutions, removed from that office by President Trump. Bharara now has his own podcast called Stay Tune with Preet. Uh, he's uh, teaching law and lecturing and always, always has interesting things to say. Preet Barrara, it's great to have you. It's great to be here. Thank you. And um, I generally, as people who listen to this podcast know, start off one place, but tonight, today I have to start off on another because we get together on a kind of uh, historic day when uh, General Mike Flynn walked into the federal courthouse In Washington, and uh, uh, pled guilty to uh, lying to FBI agents. What did you see as a student of such things? uh, What did you see in that indictment, uh,
0: and what does it portend? So it's great to be here. Uh, I will say that I didn't expect that this is going to be the main topic we're going to be talking about. But I'd be a fool not to take advantage of your presence. at Laguardia, just this morning, that's when the, the news was breaking, and so I figured we'd be talking about it. So I, I've been trying to catch up on the things that are unfolding literally as we speak, because it's only been three or four hours since yes. the news broke. Um, I've read the what's called a criminal information, yes, to which Michael Flynn has pled guilty. And what struck me first about it is it's very bare bones. Uh, bare bones. It's uh, you know a page and a half long. There's only one count. It's a count that involves uh, what the statute is known as, as 18 USC 1001, lying to the FBI. The people don't appreciate didn't appreciate it before that it's a terrible idea to lie to the FBI. They appreciate it now. Um, I think a lot of people are a little bit surprised, given how much swirling investigatory reporting was going on with respect to other things that Michael Flynn seemed to have been involved with, including, you know, potentially taking money from the government of Turkey to engage in certain acts. But doesn't that suggest
1: that? that there's a pretty elaborate deal at play here?
0: So that's a great question. And and I will tell you, frankly, um, on a podcast, you're allowed to admit you don't know. Yes. Maybe on cable you can't, but on the podcast you can. Uh, I don't know, because I'll tell you the way normally these things operated in my office. If you had a witness, if you had a target who was guilty of various things and you were prepared to charge them with various things, and then you flip them, so that they would cooperate against someone else higher in the food chain, you demand that they plead guilty not just to something small, but to everything that they have done. Because that makes the person a better witness and more repentant witness if they have to testify later. Also, if they plead guilty to these other things uh, that might be conspiracies that involved yet other people, you want your guy, your witness, to have pled guilty to them also. So in the ordinary course, I would say this may signal that Those other things didn't come to pass, and they didn't have enough evidence to prove that Michael Flynn was guilty of other stuff. Um, But this is kind of an extraordinary situation, and it's extraordinary times. And it may be, but I don't know. This is all sort of— Yes, of course. Hopefully, intelligent Mm -hmm. speculation that, you know, maybe he had information that was so considerable and so weighty and otherwise impossible to get that they decided— not to have him plead guilty to other crimes that they could have proven. That's not the ordinary way it's done, but this is not an ordinary case. It's not ordinary uh, subjects and targets that we're talking about, and some of this evidence is very hard to get. So I don't know, but time will tell.
1: There uh, there was a lot of speculation that his son was also in uh, in the crosshairs uh, for some of the activities that he was involved in with his father that would be another point of pressure he wasn't mentioned in this complaint in this uh, in this right, document
0: right look it, you know federal prosecutors are not easygoing people and for a reason it's it's very hard to get evidence of, about people's states of mind and it's hard to turn people against their criminal co-conspirators if there are any and sometimes incidentally there are family members involved and for the purpose of trying to save other people's skin within your family people will decide to flip I would not be surprised if that psychological motive was one of the reasons why we have this deal here. But but it still still is interesting that it is, uh, you know, so narrow. Um, But but, but by the way, I will say that it does show a couple of things uh, combined with the George Papadopoulos plea that the Mueller team, whatever else you think about them, cares very deeply about issues of lying and issues of obstruction. And to the extent that the special counsel is looking at obstruction on the part of other people, up to and including the President of the United States. This is not a team that takes that lightly.
1: Yeah. In this bare-bones document that was filed as criminal information, they also talked about what he lied about. And there was a lot of attention paid to The the uh, issue of whether he discussed sanctions, right? I mean, that's been publicly brooded about. Whether he discussed sanctions with the uh, Russian ambassador, that was part of it. There also was mention of uh, a a UN resolution relative to Israel. Right, relative to Israel. Just recently, uh, it was reported that the, uh, the the special counsel had called in Jared Kushner, who had that portfolio and has that portfolio with the with the president. Uh, is it it's is it your presumption that that was what the discussion was about?
0: yeah, I mean I don't I don't presume, but I think that's intelligent speculation. I think there was there's some mention in the proceeding today uh, that Michael Flynn has acknowledged that he was directed by at least some member a high up official mm-hmm. in the transition. To make contact with the Russians, I think you know the, the smart money is on that being Jared Kushner, but we don't know that yet.
1: I mean, what is it? Just and I, I know you're not um, on this case now, but what 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 would actually be uh, the violation there if there was a violation? I mean, there is the Logan Act. No one's ever actually no one's prosecuted. ever been prosecuted
0: the Logan Act. Right. So um, you know, so it's unclear what the violation would be. I think. Um, I think you have to wait for all the facts to come out. I think it's not, you know, what I've always thought was significant here based on the charges brought against Papadopoulos and now the charges brought against Flynn is, is the suggestion that there has been um, obstruction. And I also understand that Bob Mueller's mandate is in part, even if no criminal violation will be alleged, but to figure out if there was some kind of, uh, you know, improper collusion or coordination with the Russian government to help them interfere with the uh, the American election. And, you know, it's not clear to me, even if ultimately there's no crime to be charged there, <clears throat> if that's not something that the Mueller team decides to refer to the House of Representatives for potential impeachment proceedings. No, it's a big deal whether or not you can allege a particular statute, and maybe there's a way you can, but it is a big deal to uh, have evidence, and we don't know if we have it yet, that the Russian government interfered with the election and that some members of the Trump campaign may have coordinated with them on it. I'm not saying that that happened, but now you have the possibility. Uh, you have this. You actually have a general who was close to the top, close to the president himself in the campaign, and was close in the White House itself for a period of time. You have him admitting that he reached out before the election, before the, uh, the swearing in of the president two officials, high-up officials, including Ambassador Kislyak to talk about things. Right now, we know that some of those things that he talked about was the sanctions and this UN resolution relating to Israel. We don't know yet if there were also things that he didn't mention to the FBI and they're not part of his charge but that were relevant to the campaign. You no, know, I guess it's possible that he has told people um, that the president and and Michael Flynn said, among other things, to the Russians, "You know, could you help us with the campaign? Could you do this hacking? Could you make available and public documents and materials that are embarrassing that are embarrassing to Hillary Clinton?" That by itself, I think, is extremely serious. But if it was also true that in exchange for doing those kinds of things, there was a suggestion or a promise that the American government would do favors in some way, either be soft on sanctions or repeal the Magnitsky Act or any one of a number of things. In favor of Russia, I, then I think it's even more serious.
1: This also points to that meeting in June in uh, New York with the Russian lawyer uh, and others, in which the Magnitsky Act was discussed. Those sanctions uh, that apply to uh, some Russian actors related to human rights violations. Sanctions are very much uh, were very much on the minds of the Russians, and we know that the meeting. Uh, Was arranged after a proffer of information about uh, Hillary Clinton, Uh, and so um, I mean there are there are pieces here of a puzzle that seems to be coming more into focus.
0: Yeah, look, we we don't know, we just don't know what Michael Flynn is prepared to say credibly about not only Jared Kushner and Steve Bannon and others, but also. Donald Trump himself. And you know, we we know we know for a fact, if you've been paying attention in the world for the last few months, that Donald Trump, you know, doesn't make modest requests. And Donald Trump doesn't exercise a lot of caution when he talks about things, whether that's in person or on Twitter. You know, he had that meeting that was reported where he referred to Jim Comey as a nut job and revealed, apparently, to the dismay of the Israelis, some classified information to the Russians. So you know, and, and, and well, instead said
1: getting rid of Comey relieved uh, great pressure.
0: Exactly. And that was after he became president and presumably had some constraints and some sort of understanding of what the office was. But in, in the freewheeling days of the campaign, when it was far from certain that he would be ascending to the presidency, uh, I think it's fair to say, you know, God knows what kinds of discussions, arrangements, promises, representations were made to the Russians. And again, I, I'm not saying that any of those things happened, but... Given other things that are fairly surprising, it wouldn't be shocking to me.
1: You um, And I understand that there are certain prohibitions on what you can and can't uh, discuss. But there are people who work for you who are now working for Mueller. And uh, some of the people around Mueller, uh, and obviously the Manafort uh, indictment uh, speaks to it, are quite expert in uh, money laundering and other financial Uh, crimes. Um, Do you you feel that the investigation could uh, flow into the president, flow into Jared Kushner, flow into their business dealings?
0: Yeah, I mean, I I think it's possible. I think what's on everyone's minds and tongues today is what does Michael Flynn know and what he's prepared to say. But I think we all also have evidence from the indictment that is not yet proven against Paul Manafort that they're also looking at uh, transactions, financial transactions. And it wouldn't surprise me if they're looking at all of those kinds of things, too, even though some people don't like that they are. But but for today, I think the issue is, you know, what, what was the understanding on the part of Mike Michael Flynn when he was reaching out to the Russians mm-hmm. of what Donald Trump wanted? And if Donald Trump was suggesting that anything would be coming back to the Russians in exchange for not retaliating in the way they normally would have. I mean, look, the... the What's extraordinary about all of this, separate and apart from a legal matter, as you know, is in every other instance, going back as far as memory serves, when the United States takes some action against the Russians, they fully expect, and the Russian people fully expect, their government to retaliate in kind. And you had somebody who was not yet in office, the National Security Advisor, basically admitting through this guilty plea about lying that he Mm -hmm. he got the Russians to back down. Now... Maybe the Russians decided to back down because, you know, Michael Flynn, they they wanted to curry some sort of general goodwill and favor with the new administration. But it's not crazy to ask, well, you know, Vladimir Putin had to look weak in deciding not to retaliate in the way that you usually do, And, and his foreign minister had to look weak not... Doing something like that, which is what the Russians always do, so what are you getting in return for that? And I think that's a vital question to ask
1: mm-hmm. you know if you're listening to this and you're not a lawyer and you're not a, a you know steeped in all of this, you're the average American out there. and the answer were some sort of assurance that these sanctions would come off or some sort of sanctions relief um I mean, there there is the Logan Act, and there is a, not just a law but a tradition of one president at a time, yes. one president makes foreign policy. But uh, you could see uh, supporters of the president arguing, uh, you know, uh, if he got the Russians to stand down, uh, isn't that a good thing?
0: Yeah, you know, <clears throat> there's, there's some legal debate on whether or not the Logan Act, which basically says – I'm way oversimplifying – that private citizens are not supposed to be negotiating foreign policy on behalf of the, of the American government. And there's a good reason for that. I don't think it's ever been successfully prosecuted. And there's probably a good reason for that also, because it doesn't come up that often. It's complicated. And, you know, just, you know, people are probably a little bit, you know, uh, reticent to bring a charge like that. Um, but it, it doesn't mean it's not serious stuff.
1: Yeah. If uh, last question on this, <clears throat> if you were the white house, um, how would you, I, I saw, uh, the, uh, Ty Cobb's statement, the yes. president's lawyer, uh, which basically was, this is an indictment of Mr. Flynn for things that Mr. Flynn did, but plainly it had, it, it was much more meaningful and the announcement that he was cooperating. What, what do you suppose, uh, the president's lawyers are telling him
0: today? Well, you know, they're probably telling him the same kinds of things, that they've been telling him all along, but they tend to fall on deaf ears. They're probably telling him you should keep your head down, focus on the problems of the country, leave the lawyering to us. They're probably telling him don't tweet, certainly don't tweet in anger, don't give prosecutors grist for showing what was in your mind. Um, I, I tweeted earlier today, You know this is one of those moments and those days when it's useful to pay close attention to what Donald Trump says, does and tweets in the coming hours and days, because it's the clearest indication of what his state of mind is. You know, one of, the, one of the most important, I think, potential pieces of evidence against Donald Trump is not something that's secret or that was, you know, received pursuant to a subpoena, but was the interview he gave to Lester Holt mm-hmm. a few days after firing Jim Comey when he explicitly said on national television, one of the things that was on my mind when I fired Jim Comey was a Russian investigation, which, you know, bears directly on whether right. or not he was trying to obstruct that investigation. And it stands to reason that the president is probably very angry right now. He's been angry for many, many months at any whisper or hint of acceleration of the Russia investigation. And now you have a guy who was high up in the campaign, who was his national security advisor, who he clearly likes, who he decided to hire over the objection of, you know, and and advice of his predecessor and others in career government, and then didn't want to fire him. And then after he, he got fired, after Flynn got fired, Trump literally said to Jim Comey, can you back off on this guy? And has, according to reports, regretted having let him go um, and suggested all sorts of things about his loyalty to Michael Flynn. You know, he's going to say some stuff potentially, and that will shed some light on his state of mind, I think.
1: Yeah, that's one of the big open questions is why would the president go to the extraordinary length (coughs) of asking Jim Comey, uh, as Jim Comey has asserted he did? Uh, to go easy on uh, Flynn, and why would the president clear the room to make such a request? Uh, But I guess those
0: answers... Well, can I just make one more point? All of those things are important, you know, that go to what is in the mind of the person who is saying certain things. And so I think some people are going to, for political reasons or otherwise, will be dismissive of this, these criminal charges to which Michael Flynn has pled guilty. But the question is, why was he lying in the first place? And, you know, federal prosecutors know... And they know the juries understand this. Uh, If you're lying about something, there's usually some reason for it, and often it is the case that you can prove the reason you're lying about something is because you understood the underlying conduct. Even if you're not ultimately charged with it, you're trying to hide something. You're trying to protect someone. So, you know, people might view this as a narrow charge, but given the nature of what the lie was about, given the fact, by the way, this was on the fourth day of the presidency of Donald Trump. He had been the National Security Advisor for four days on January twenty fourth. And the F- and he's a member of the government of the government and he had been a general. And the FBI comes into in his office and asks him direct questions and he lies about things that had happened just in the in the recent days. That's an extraordinary thing and may tell us more about Know, what's going Maybe on they the gave future.
1: the briefing on how to talk to an FBI agent on the fifth day. on the fifth day. <laughs> yes. Uh, yes. So let me ask you a question: uh, Pardons uh, this notion that the president could could pardon uh, these people? Obviously, it would, it would be it would be politically fraught to do so. Fraught, but, Yes. But he has uh, but he
0: has the power to do it. He does under the Constitution. And look, we, look. On the one hand, we know on the I've said this a couple of times now that the Mueller team takes seriously lying and obstruction, and they will not, and not everyone does, and they will not shrink from bringing such charges no matter how high up they go, and this is pretty high up. On the other hand, we also know that the president himself does not shrink from exercising his full constitutional authority either, as we saw in the case of his pardon of Joe Arpaio. That was done, as I understand it, with respect to someone whose proceedings hadn't concluded. No time had passed from the conviction because... It was still in process, and it was done completely out of the normal process of the Justice Department. When I was the U.S. attorney, we we actually were asked to opine on and give our advice on and recommendations with respect to pardon applications all the time. There's actually an office of the pardon attorney at the Department of Justice. It's not required by—the Constitution doesn't require that process, but the president bypassed all of it. And so I think it is a reasonable concern that people have that both the president— understands his constitutional power to pardon, as he did in Joe Arpaio, which was a fraught decision too. So maybe he'll do it with respect to other people if he feels under the gun. And second, he will exercise his constitutional authority to fire people. And so the second thing I think people should be really concerned about, it's not a joke, because he's done it in the case of Jim Comey. We know that Bob Mueller is different, stand in somewhat different shoes. But I would worry in a real way that Donald Trump may preemptively pardon some people. And I still worry, in a real way, that Donald Trump may decide to cause the firing of Robert Mueller. I think those are real concerns. We're going to take a, a short break, and we'll be right back with
1: Preet Bharara. You know, let, let's talk a little bit about your own very interesting history. Uh, uh, talk about your your, your folks and— um, and their history
0: and how you came here in the first place. Sure. So mom and dad will love this. They like it when I talk about them. Um, So my uh, mother and father were born in India. My mother and father were both born in what is known as Rawalpindi, uh, which actually was in what is now Pakistan. So before people appreciate that, you know, there used to be one country called India. Mm -hmm. And then after British rule uh, relented, in 1947, it was divided up into two countries, uh, one predominantly Muslim to the north, Pakistan, and to the south, predominantly Hindu, but also Sikh as well. My father is Sikh. My mother is Hindu. And they had to actually migrate in 1947. Uh, my father did. My mother was very young, maybe not yet born, uh, to the Indian side. And my my mom and dad uh, had an arranged marriage, which was the and still is the custom in large parts of India. My dad was a great student. He went to uh, college, the first person in his family to go to college, and he had 12 brothers and sisters. He was the oldest of 13. He went to um, medical school, did very well, and at some point decided he wanted to leave India for you know a better life for him, you know himself, his wife and me. I was just born. I was born in India. Yeah. And we went to the United Kingdom uh, and came to the United States. The first place we lived in America was Buffalo. I think it was the first time my mother ever saw. Us. She went from the the heat of De- of outside of Delhi to the, the snow snowed. of Buffalo yes, in 1970. A lot of snow. That's when we had snow. That was before all this yes, warming stuff. Warming, was yeah. happening. Uh, and and so you know we we then ended up uh, you know a new Indian family in the great state of New Jersey, the Garden State, and uh, we had another. They had another kid, my younger brother, uh, who made it big in business at some point later in life. And we, we had an ordinary life growing up in Jersey as an immigrant family where the thing that my parents cared about more than anything else was how we did in school. They, uh, my dad was, you know, I sometimes refer to him as the tiger dad. He was the strict one. Mm-hmm. My mom was the less strict one. Uh, and if we, got, you know, if we got a 98 on a test, my dad wants to know why not 100. He, he wanted us to be very competitive. That's, I know that's not a popular way of thinking about parenting these days. Competitive with each other, with each other. You know, I've tried every once in a while to ask my my kids, especially my daughter, you know, how how someone else do, and I get I get an eye roll uh, and a dismissive. I have no idea, and why are you asking me that? But when, <laughs> I, when I grew up, my parents wanted to know how I did relative to everyone else, mm-hmm. and they they wanted my brother and me to be you know first in our class, and. You know that's how we were brought up. Yeah, and so I think it's they not made an us kind unusual of, story. Honestly, I mean, uh, it's uh, it's not. Um, yeah, there was. I think there was a good amount of. Uh, there was a lot of attention to school. There was a lot of discussion about what was going on in school. Um, you know, my dad was very busy and worked. You know, as a as a pediatrician in Asbury Park, New Jersey, which is a great place to be. Uh, yes, a you're doctor, a Springsteen you know, a guy. Huge Springsteen yeah. guy. Uh, yeah. In part because of that, and it's, it's impossible not to be, and also just as a matter of um,
1: it's the right thing to do let's just assume. i think that. it's a matter of yeah.
0: sort of auditory physics it's yeah, impossible not to be a great spring i agree Spain. anyway so that was so that was our life so they they wanted us both to become doctors as a lot of uh, stereotypically indian american immigrants want my dad was a doctor he thought it was a, it was a noble thing to be a doctor he he cared for kids his whole life but you went wrong you we went totally wrong and i don't think it was until i got sworn in in a job for which I had to be nominated by the president and confirmed by the Senate with subpoena power that my dad was like, all right, I guess, I guess you did. Under fear of indictment. Under fear fear of indictment. indictment. I would recuse uh, myself. Not like a Jeff Sessions recusal. I would do a real (laughs) recusal if my father were under investigation.
1: Let me, uh, let me ask you a couple of things about your, uh, your growing up that I uh, read that uh, Uh interested me, um, about, uh, the fact that you um, you complain to your parents that you were in a class and you never got to be the flag
0: bearer for the Pledge of Allegiance. Yeah, you know, actually, I talked about that on my podcast, which is called "Stay Tuned with Bree." Yes, <laughs> we'll plug <laughs> look, it at the top. I was dude. waiting. I, look, I was waiting for the plug. I just wanted to make sure they got the plug in. Um, you know, I had I had forgotten about that for a long time, and it's true. I was uh, I was five. I don't remember anything from kindergarten. And I went to two different schools in kindergarten. We moved in the middle of that year. And the one thing I remember, which means it must have been a big deal, because you don't remember things unless they were a big deal at the time. And the uh, class every morning was asked to lead. You know, One student was asked to lead the class in the Pledge of Allegiance, and I never got asked that. And they went around all the kids, and then they started to go to the second round of the kids, and I didn't understand why that was. And I went home and I told my, my dad, and I thought maybe they messed up or something. And, you know, again, I don't know if he's right. I was five years old. But based on his interactions with the teacher and the nature of things and a meeting he had, he he believed very strongly that this teacher thought that someone who looked like me, who came from where I came, shouldn't be permitted to sort of, you know, hold the flag and lead the class in the Pledge of Allegiance. So he pulled you out of the school. Well, we, we, I think that was part of the reason. And we were thinking about moving anyway. But we, we moved in the middle of the year, yeah. <clears throat> she, she also was obviously upset. My academically inclined father, uh, I got like an unsatisfactory uh, on some of the things that we were supposed to after know. the complaint. It was around this time, I can't remember if it was before or after, mm-hmm. um, including whether or not I knew my home address and my home phone number. And of course, I knew my home address and home phone number. And uh, he he thought that was some evidence of he thought that was some evidence of bias, bias yeah. of bias too.
1: Yeah, yeah. Uh, the 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 other thing is. Uh, I see that uh, you won an award in your sophomore year of high school for uh, for re- reciting Darrow's summation in the People versus Henry
0: Sweet. I I won a lot of awards for reciting you that won. speech. Not to, you know I don't mean to brag about my fifteen year old. We're
1: you know. only an hour long show know, here, so we've got to make some wait till we get choices. We can
0: spend we can spend this episode on age fifteen. We can do age sixteen on but, next time.
1: But uh, <laughs> <laughs> how did you uh, how did you write that we should point out that the People versus Henry Sweet was a very, very famous case in the early 20th century African American man in the Detroit
0: area, right, yes. who uh, uh, defended himself against the assault of a mob. So, you know, it was a time when people didn't think African Americans should be, you know, in, in white neighborhoods, shouldn't have African Americans living there, and there was um, you know, a middle-class family led by Dr. Oshien Sweet, and Henry Sweet, I think, was his brother, and a mob formed outside the home And they were threatening violence against these people who had every right to live there. But it was, you know, early in the 20th century, as you say. And they had guns to protect themselves. And at some point, uh, I think there was some kind of assault on the home. And Henry Sweet fired into the crowd and he killed a man. And, you know, that's a tough uphill battle of a case. Yeah. And Clarence Darrow came to represent him, the most famous lawyer in the land, probably more famous than any lawyer we have today. Yes. If you go back in time. Uh, even more famous than Ty Cobb. And, you know, and he gave... gave Not as more famous necessarily than Ty Cobb, the baseball player, player. but his descendant lawyer. Somebody suggested it wasn't clear that Donald Trump knew that there were two (laughs) Ty Cobbs, and maybe it was, you know, sort of like... He said,
1: give me Babe Ruth. (laughs) Uh,
0: He's the Ty Cobb of lawyers. No, his name is actually Ty Cobb? I'm very confused. I'm so confused. Um, Look, And he gave a very impassioned speech in the summation where he said things that have stuck with me and helped me think about how I did my job as, as U.S. Attorney. And, and one of the themes of his summation and also of his life is that you can pass whatever perfect laws you want, but it doesn't assure justice and it doesn't assure fairness. And that, you know, he, he would say about the plight of African Americans in America getting back to slavery, you know, the real question he would say is not what has the law done, but what has man done? And I find time and time again when we talk about how the Mueller team is conducting itself or how our Justice Department is conducting itself, you can have good laws and good rules, but if you don't have good people who exercise their judgment and wisdom in a fair and unbiased way uh, you know, to protect the, under, you know, the underprotected uh, and to fight for the right things, then everything can go south. And Darrow was a person who understood and believed that. Now,
1: when by the this was your, your sophomore uh, in high school, by that time, did you see yourself as Clarence Darrow? Did you see yourself as no? I was I was a, I was, a sup-
0: I was super nerd, um, who on the weekends did these speech competitions, and I re- I would recite that speech in my sophomore year. Um, I did a Bobby Kennedy speech in my junior year, but I think at that point I I wanted to be a lawyer. And everything that happened to me in school academically and otherwise after that convinced me more and more that I wanted to be a lawyer. And, you know, I never – look, I became a prosecutor. I didn't become a criminal defense lawyer. So in that regard, I'm very different from Clarence Darrow. And, you know, he probably was one of the best advocates to have ever lived in modern times. And, I don't, you know, I'm not, I'm not that, certainly, as you can tell from my performance on this podcast. But I did think that if you're going to go into the law, that it would be uh, – it would be interesting and great and 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 satisfying to practice criminal law because the stakes are high and to care about justice, whether from the defense perspective or from the prosecution perspective. And also on top of all that, do it in a courtroom. You know, the, there, there are fewer trials today than there were five years ago and 10 years ago and they, they dwindle because of the, the police system that we have. Um, and I don't, I'm actually one of the people who thinks that's not a great thing. I think that, you know, truth comes out during trial. It's very difficult given the resources, but I, right. I, I, you know I advise every, everybody who wants to become a lawyer and a litigation type of lawyer, you got to get in the courtroom. I think it teaches you a lot of skills and that's one of the reasons that people would apply to my old office because they want they wanted to argue to a jury and to a judge and have real life experience pleading some cause or case. I, I don't think there's anything more exhilarating I mean other than other than a podcast. The podcast no, is the best. Nothing know. as exhilarating. Well, there's no judge to shut down. I didn't down. spend
1: three years in podcasting school <laughs> for nothing, you know. Yeah. So you, uh, uh, you you became you. You talked about being a prosecutor. You also spent some time in government. Uh, well, prosecution was government, but yes. In I, uh, yeah, I understand, but outside of the
0: prosecutorial that's system, that's
1: correct. You know, uh, at the United States Senate. Uh,
0: So you came out of law school. You did some time as a prosecutor. Here at law school, I was in private practice, um, and I did some criminal defense work for six years. Then I became an assistant U.S. attorney, a line prosecutor in the Southern District of New York. And then I got this out. And then in between that job and becoming the United States attorney um, himself, in between for four and a half years, I served as chief counsel on the Senate Judiciary Committee for a particular subcommittee that was run by uh, Senator Charles Schumer who is, now, who is now the leader of the minority in the Senate. One of the things that you uh, did there
1: was worked on um, the case of how U.S. attorneys were fired. Uh, ironic. How ironic is that? U.S. So attorneys I, so being <laughs> fired by the Bush administration yeah. and charges of political uh, yeah. interference. Uh, it, it does raise the question about how judges and prosecutors are being appointed now. Um, we've seen the case of three or four um, Judges appointed to the federal bench uh, who were rated unqualified by the American Bar Association—kind of unprecedented. Uh, One of them was just approved by the Senate Judiciary Committee. Uh, Do you, based on your experience, have what's your level of concern about uh, about that?
0: So you know, I did spend four and a half years. the, The subcommittee that I was either the minority staffer or the majority staffer, depending on the year, was the Subcommittee on Administrative Oversight and the Courts. And one of the, the jobs that I had was, you know, to help advise my boss and the committee on judicial nominations. And I sat for for two Supreme Court confirmation hearings, including for Sam Alito and John Roberts, who are both now on the court. The court is incredibly important to the extent people complain from their political perspective about the qualifications uh, temperament or expertise of members of the cabinet, uh, some of whom the president himself doesn't seem to like, you know, those men and women will be gone in either three or seven years and probably sooner. Uh, But the judges are going to be there forever, for life. Not forever, but for life. And the younger they're appointed, the longer they're going to be there. And so if you're not appointing people who are are qualified and have the right temperament, at this point, putting aside whether they're, uh, you know, right wing or left wing, then I think that's something to be concerned about. Look, Democratic presidents over the years have appointed a lot of people who are on whatever the left means, and Republican presidents have appointed people who are on whatever the right means, whatever however you want to define those terms. What I think is different and of concern, not just in the cabinet, um, when you have somebody who's running the energy department who wanted to abolish the energy department, but you have, I think, multiple cases of judicial nominees who have been voted unanimously unqualified by a nonpartisan association the American Bar Association to to my knowledge in the modern times nobody who has been voted unanimously unqualified not you know minority not a majority but unanimously unqualified has ever been confirmed and the reason you don't want to have that is that is i think a judgment a professional judgment based on interviews based on looking at credentials based on talking to all these folks colleagues that it's not clear that they're going to be able to do justice when wearing a robe and sitting on the bench. And I don't think that's a partisan determination. And it's not good for for anyone. It's not good for people on the left, people on the right, for people in the middle. And if they start acting in a way that doesn't bring, I think, honor to their job as judges, it's not only bad for the particular litigants who will be treated unfairly in in that case uh, that comes before the judge, but also undermines faith and confidence in the judiciary generally. I, I think the judges should be the smartest, best, most—you know—have the best temperaments of any lawyers around, and that's why they should be on the bench. Yeah. Well,
1: the one
0: of the appointees
1: that we're speaking of had three years of has three years of experience in the law, and no no courtroom experience. It's got to be a
0: a concern. Yeah. You know. Yes, you want experienced people. I think more importantly, you want people with great judgment and good temperament, um, who can exercise judgment with wisdom and discretion. And yeah, it's better if you have uh, courtroom to, experience. But, you, but, but not, you not de- everyone not everyone does. So I'm, I'm, how do you
1: demonstrate that uh, if you if you are scarcely
0: have practiced the law or uh, have experienced a courtroom? I'm, I'm I'm with you. And if you're gonna if you're gonna you know trust someone with being on the bench for a lifetime then i think you should be assured of it. I, I think in some ways it's more important to be assured of the temperament and judgment of somebody about whom you have less information because they have not been around so long look there are there are there have been great judges who have been ap- appointed in their you know their late 30s some from my own office um, and i think it's right to ask about a particularly young judge who has a little bit less experience more probing questions Hold them to a higher standard to make sure that they really are the kind of superstar who deserves to be vested with so much power over, you know, huge controversies in the public. And you should ask more questions about people like that. And if you come up short, then they shouldn't be appointed. You know, um, I
1: skipped over something that I wanted to ask
0: you about. Oh, I, ho- I think but I see not, it there. What?
1: No, but one of the one of the prosecutors you worked for is Jim Comey. I did indeed. And I want to ask you about him uh before you were going to skip that uh I was but I but then I thought better of it <laughs> um, because there's he's obviously someone of great interest now um, and that's uh, one that's one word for it <laughs> well tell me about him and the the person that you know and then I want to ask you a little bit about how he's handled some of these situations
0: so you know I understand Jim and I call him Jim he's a friend of mine yeah of course he uh was the u.s attorney when i was a line prosecutor a junior person for a couple of years i dealt with him when he was a deputy attorney general and i worked in the senate and obviously i dealt with him when he was the fbi director and i was the united states attorney and so put aside the things that have caused him to be either a hero or a villain Mm -hmm. alternately from the left and the right and something i i saw uh some months ago about jim comey expressed i think a view that some people have you know you know i love him i hate him i love him i hate him i love him i hate him So from a personal perspective, you know, he was my boss and he was universally considered to be when I was a line assistant in the U.S. attorney's office, a great boss and a great leader and somebody who not only believed in the mission of public service, but also believed in caring about the people in the office, caring about their development, um, you know, nourishing their talents, uh, walking around the hallways. You know, a, a lot of the things that I adopted. Just as a leader in the office, uh, I learned from him, including you know having a, people don't think he has a sense of humor. You know, maybe eventually you'll have him on your podcast after he's looked forward his book. to that. Yeah, he's a he's a funny guy. People look at me like I have three heads. He's when demonstrated I say that. that somewhat and somewhat, but yeah. he, he's he's than... Fun- he's funnier. These than, aren't exactly hilarious than you, than you, times. <laughs> they're not hilarious times. No. But uh, I, he's he's a fundamentally good and I think decent, uh, honest person. And so, you know, I, I have I have a relationship. With, the, with him, and I think he has a lot of loyal followers, and, and some of the things that are, have been difficult to hear, and I completely understand the criticism, and I may even share in some of it, with the way he dealt with some matters from last year, but the thing that I that I really believe in my heart and my mind to be true about Jim Comey, and many of your listeners may not like to hear this, I don't think he ever did anything in any government job with an intention to help one political side or another. You may think he shouldn't have issued a letter or he shouldn't have done a particular press conference, but I believe he, A, always wanted to do what he thought was right, even if you disagree with it, um, and you think it was absurd for anyone to think it's right, and B, I don't think the man uh, lies. And so when he has said things about what Donald Trump told him and he testifies about it, I believe it. The uh, the question, I guess, I... I, I uh you know, I
1: had some uh, I, some observation of him in my own uh, roles and so on. and, I, yes, and I what did you think? have a high reg- Well, I mean I, I, I have a high regard for him. I, I do some uh, watching just watching all of this happen, I think what I also think, which is not inconsistent with what you said, is that um, he he does what he thinks is right and, 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 and maybe sometimes derogates to himself more responsibility than he should in pursuing what he thinks is right. Uh, I mean, is that a fair
0: critique yeah look i think look, i think he I think he has a very strong view about um being above board and not allowing anyone ever to be able to accuse him of misleading anyone and i think I think that in part is and again i 'm not agreeing with what he did, but if you want to understand what I think was going through someone 's and again he and I have not talked about this this is you know, distant speculation on my part, but knowing him and knowing how, you know, things tend to work. Um, it's very, very important to him, which I think is not a terrible quality in normal times. And if you have sort of, you know, a a less fraught job to want everyone to understand, to be meticulous about Mm -hmm. the truth and meticulous about your reputation for the truth. Now, you know, in, in different hypothetical situations to, to pick a frivolous one, uh, you know, some might say if someone asks you, you know, do I look fat today? Um, I never ask the, the more, Well, you know, well, if you, do, I'm we'll always, edit, you don't edit that ask out. a question, you don't want the answer to. <laughs> but, but if asked the if someone asks if someone asks the question, you know, a lot of people would say you know it might be okay to lie in that circumstance. Um, I'm using a frivolous example, but you know, one could make the argument that sometimes it's better to keep silent and have people and let people have a misimpression yeah. about the truth than otherwise. And so you know, so I get the impulse that sometimes people have um, to want to explain what's going on and be you know expansive in what was going on in the Hillary investigation, which I think was one of the things that, that brought him a lot of criticism. Again, there are other consequences that flow from deciding to talk about something, mm-hmm. but but the Jim Comey I know uh, has a penchant for wanting people to understand yeah. and wanting to explain the the reasons why he has he and his offices have engaged in certain actions. That can cause a lot of trouble like it did last it has, year. Yeah. But but I think the impulse is when uh, when transparency when B, well well also yeah. what's well also it's it's also a, a mode of defense and remember you know it is a difficult thing and I'm sure this is true for you and I'm sure when you're advising the former president, you know, in the campaign and otherwise, when people attack you and people say you're a liar or people you know, this this is an impulse Not to compare them to Donald Trump, has also. When people say bad things about you that you think are not true, the natural impulse is to respond to them. Yes. Now, some people should, regardless of that, should maybe keep their mouth shut. But when there's swirling around a lot of allegations and accusations that the FBI is bought and sold, bought and paid for by the Clinton campaign or some such thing Mm -hmm. like that, all I'm saying is minimally that. You can understand, perhaps, the impulse of someone to defend against that charge, but the way in which you defend against that charge may cause more trouble right. than it's worth. Yes, sometimes impulse control is
1: important. Yeah. We'll uh, take a, a, a another short break, and we'll be right back. You had quite a run as the U.S. attorney from the Southern District, which is a storied uh, institution in American history located where it is in in the, this power center in Manhattan. Uh, and uh, I want to ask you a few things about uh, how you uh, approach the job and uh, uh, a few things about the the power of the government itself. But one thing that interested me is you became U.S. attorney at a time of of sort of revolutionary change in the way business is done, in the way we communicate, in the way uh, sometimes crime is committed. And you put a real emphasis on cyber crime and digital uh, crimes that use
0: digital tools and so on. Uh, Tell me a little bit about that and your thinking there. Yeah, um, that's thank you for that question because people don't talk about that as much as they should. When I became the U.S. Attorney in August of 2009, the level of concern at the topmost uh, echelons of our government was not what it should have been with respect to the cyber threat. And in our office itself, and at the FBI, and at the Secret Service, the two main agencies who deal with the cyber threat, I think the the amount of focus, you know, wasn't where it should have been given the developing and gathering threat. When I first took office, we had, I like to say, we had one expert who was incredibly well-versed on cyber and and the technicalities of it and how computers worked and how the Internet worked and how intrusions could be thwarted and prosecuted. By the time we were five or six years in, we had ten times as many people. The FBI had multiplied the number of squads that it had devoted to cyber at the same time that the squads devoted to the five organized crime families dwindled because the threats changed. And I think it's a, you know, it's a microcosm of a lesson that every government agency should learn to adapt to the threat. And now, some years after 2009, you have, you know, the presidents, you know, you had the former president talking about the cyber threat, the defense secretary, the treasury secretary, um, the head of the FBI, talking about the fact that, you know, in some ways, uh, whether you're talking the, uh, you know, nation-state you know, state actors trying to prey on cyber vulnerabilities that we have, or people are just trying to rip you off by taking from a remote location in Eastern Europe millions of dollars out of your bank accounts, or you're talking about people who just have an ideological point of view, um, you know, like the Lilzek folks. It's a huge threat, and it's very, very difficult to guard against. And I think it behooved everyone to figure out a way to catch up to the bad guys. And that involved, among other things, increasing the number of personnel that you put on it, um, educating yourself. You know, I, 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 whenever I talk to sort of cyber folks, I say, uh, you know, you, you might wonder what my, my name means, uh, Pre, And I say, it's actually ancient Sanskrit for cyber fighter. The, the problem is barara is also ancient Sanskrit for, could you help me turn on my computer? Yes. That's so, I'm, you know, I was kind of a Luddite too, but then you realize in the same way that we say that CEOs of companies who are in charge of so much, of such a wealth of information about you, me, and everyone else in the country and in the world? If you don't have a tech background or a computer background, well, you better get one a little bit, and you better figure out who are the people who have it, so they can advise you better. It's not. Do an you think we're anymore. at the level we should be in terms no, of these I don't, threats? No, but I think, but I think in the last few years, I think we've come a long way. I think that we've come a long way in having uh, the people at the topmost levels of government coordinating with other people throughout the world. So we did a cyber case of, of great significance where there were bad guys all over the, all over the world who engaged in sort of um, hijacking thousands and thousands of computers all over the world and forming these bots and uh, doing very bad things to lots of people's computers and disabling them, etc. And when we announced the case, what I wanted for the visual was a map of the world. And on the map of the world, we highlighted and we shaded in red Every country in which some law enforcement action had taken place, uh, either a search warrant or an arrest or something else or a document produced, and it was 19 countries. And the idea that 10 years ago, there could have been a 19 country coordinated effort against a cyber threat, I think would have been unheard of. So I have great optimism that we're we're getting better and that people are hiring from the private sector, very, very smart people, smarter than people who have already been in government Mm -hmm. to combat it. But are we doing enough? I don't think so.
1: One of the questions I get when I travel all the time is why didn't the administration uh, come down harder on those people who were responsible for the uh, financial crisis in 2008 and particularly on Wall Street? Wall Street was uh, part of your domain there. Uh, and I know you've been asked that question quite a bit, too. Only five,
0: 6,000 times. Well, then you should have a very polished answer. You know, I, I don't. It's, it's a— it, It's a frustrating thing when bad things happen to a business and worse when they happen to an economy and a country. And I always say to people, uh, I understand that frustration. And we shared that frustration because if bad people did bad things, you want to hold them accountable. But the prosecutors in my office and at the various regulatory agencies, and there were lots and lots and lots of offices and lots and lots and lots of career people, not just in my office but around the country, and in Washington, and New York, and in Los Angeles, and Chicago, looking at these issues to see if there were high-up folks able to be prosecuted. But before we were all prosecutors, we we're Americans too, and we suffered in the financial crisis too. So we had every incentive and motive, motivation to hold people accountable if you could. But you can only do what the law allows and what the facts allow. And if in the hundreds and hundreds of cases where people looked at things, uh, there was not sufficient evidence to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that the folks you're talking about at the upper echelons you could prove what's in their mind and prove that they asked for others to engage in illegal acts then you can't bring the case as frustrating as it is and there are lots and lots of bad things that happen how hard did you look everyone that i know have looked incredibly hard we we, we had a subset of things that we looked at but the way it worked was the, the justice department divided up a lot of different things before i got you know we got there in 2009 and you know, the bad things started happening in 07 and 08. Um, and so a lot of the, the, uh, the, the parceling out of investigations and cases, most of it happened before, you know, the, the Obama United States attorneys came into, into being, but we, yeah, we looked at a bunch of things and we, we were not afraid of charging anyone, you know, the, the, and I, I understand people's frustration, but to the extent people suggest that there was any kind of um, lack of will or expertise uh, with respect to holding people accountable for that. I think that's that's nonsensical. We we charged, you know, people who uh, kill witnesses. We charged heads of al-Qaeda. We charged and investigated uh, the most powerful f- political figures in the state of New York and the most powerful Wall Street traders. So, it, you know, it wasn't a question of, of not having the will. What about the, the laws? The law were were the laws right? adequate? I mean, did you have the tools well, look, to do it? You can always look when you ask a prosecutor, can you give me a new tool? I think the standard answer is is yes. but I also caution people and it's not a popular answer either. the way to hold people accountable if you don't have uh, the facts to prove something, you can't prove what's in their mind and you don't have a bank president ordering somebody to destroy documents uh, or to ignore the law in some way, is to basically hold them strictly liable and say if you engage in reckless behavior, we can send you to jail. And there's a lot of reckless behavior and there's a lot of negligent behavior. I also note, by the way, that not only did none of those folks at, at the highest levels go to prison, all the regulatory agencies in the country, of which there are many, um, who have a lower standard of proof, you know, just preponderance of the evidence, uh, because jail is not involved, didn't bring a single regulatory action. So you know, it, it was a pretty universal um, inability to hold people accountable for the kinds of things that people might want. Yeah, which was hearts. a source of great frustration to it many, is. many people. Yeah, ab- absolutely. But you can choose to lower the, the the standard of what's in someone's head to bring a case, and you can decide, well, if you engage in reckless or negligent conduct that caused damage to the economy or caused a business to fail, um, then they can be subject to prison. You can do that and you know, if I was a prosecutor still, I would prosecute those cases because that's the law. I just caution people to think if you do that in those kinds of cases and you lower the standard in that way, you're gonna open up criminal liability to a lot of other people too, including people who are negligent on their taxes. And you and you just have there's a balance between figuring out the the best way to hold people accountable, but also doing it in a way that we're true to what You know the criminal justice system should be about, but I, I, of course, I get the frustration. You, uh, you mentioned that you went after
1: also some very powerful people in government uh, in New York State.
0: A number of those convictions were thrown out. Shelley Silver, the speaker. Well, they, they were, yeah, they were. The the court held in the Second Circuit that because of an intervening Supreme Court case, by the Supreme Court, and so at the time that our cases were brought, not only was the law very clear on our side, um, but even the appeals court found that there was more than sufficient evidence to prove both of those men guilty beyond a reasonable doubt based on what we did. As a technical legal matter, the Supreme Court narrowed the definition of what an official action is. So you get a Rolex watch or you get a lot of money and then you do something in response to that, in exchange for that. Uh, Most of what we alleged and what we proved at trial in the Silver case and in the Skelos case was overwhelmingly within the definition that even that, that Supreme Court case, the McDonald case, said was was still applicable, voting on legislation, giving grants to particular institutions, which are fully and completely official action, as any reasonable person would understand it, in the country. There were a couple of instances, minor instances, in both of those trials where prosecutors argued, because it was the law at the time, before the Supreme Court changed it, that uh, those politicians, in exchange for gifts, in exchange for money, had arranged certain meetings, for constituents. And what the Supreme Court basically did in a decision that a lot of people think is naive, but it's the law of the land, said that the mere arrangement of arranging of meetings is not sufficient to to send someone to prison if that's the official action. And so what the court said, basically, and that talking about frustration, it's kind of frustrating to a lot of people, not just the prosecutors, but people who believe in clean and good government, because none of those politicians did anything they should be proud of, said in light of the fact that it's not 100% certain that a juror didn't convict one of those guys based on this narrower definition of official action, they should be retried. So they're going to be retried by my former office, and I would hope and expect that they get convicted again. You, uh, you, you are
1: a you are a media presence uh, in New York. Someone and now in Chicago. You, you studied. You studied. Now in Chicago. Yes, you studied. Uh, at the feet of uh, the master, in some ways, because Chuck Schumer is very has a great facility uh, with uh, sound bites. In fact, somebody in a profile said about you he would draft uh, questions for Schumer with sound bites in mind. He learned to think that way and write that way. Um, do you uh, bridle at this characterization of you as uh, kind of a sound bite guy?
0: I, I don't know what that means. Uh, you know, I, I have a podcast now, like you. Stay tuned with Preet. Yes, um, and I don't spend my time in my. 40, there you go again, Forty-five. You yeah, that's very. That's good. not a soundbite. That's just. That's just. <laughs> that's just blatant self-promotion of my podcast, um, and I don't think about you know what's a soundbite from it. I, I think that it's important if you're deciding to speak about something, you want people to remember what you're saying, and you want to have an impact on folks. Mm-hmm. So I, I I think a lot about how I speak um, when I give long talks that are thirty, forty, forty-five minutes long. But I think when you're trying to get your point across, whether you're speaking to the public or, by the way, you're speaking to a jury, you want to speak in plain language. In plain language, if done in a way that gets to the heart of the matter in the fewest words possible, I guess you call that a soundbite. But I call that effective communication. And I think it's a part of all walks of life, not just, again, in the public, but that's an effective way that lawyers communicate with jurors to prove their
1: point. I guess the question is, did you... The, the and the criticism would be that not only did you talk in sound bites, but that you brought cases that would bring attention onto yourself and so on.
0: No, first of all, I didn't bring any cases. The cases that were brought were brought by the unbelievably dedicated, hardworking, career men and women of the U.S. Attorney's Office. I got credit for a lot of it and blame when it didn't go well, which is less often than the other way. Well, because to the I, world of podcasts. Because, <laughs> because I because I was the United States Attorney, and so. You know, cases were brought based on what folks thought the threat was and what the evidence was, and some of those cases we generated because we keep our eyes open and our ears open. Some of those cases were generated because the FBI brought them to us or the DEA brought them to us, Um, or you flip a guy and he tells you about some other bad conduct. And so you bring all the cases on the merits. Now, once the cases are brought, uh, I think for a lot of reasons, including for deterrent effect, um, and and to show the public that the office is doing the work it's supposed to be doing and is adhering to its mission I wanted them to know that the office and I was very proud of my office and I absolutely wanted people to know that we were on the job and whether we captured a terrorist or you know we got money you know 7.2 billion dollars back for the people who were victimized by Bernie Madoff and is the most massive ponzi scheme of all time yeah I wanted people to know that we were doing that I wanted people to know
1: if you were pretty in outspoken to, when you indicted the Politicians about the state of politics in Albany, and And you you conducted a long investigation into the Moreland Commission that was disbanded by the governor. So those kinds of things are the things that that come up.
0: Yeah, because I think that if you are the, the, the chief law enforcement officer, whether you're a district attorney or a United States attorney, if the only job you think that you're supposed to be doing is to hold people accountable. But not also in a way that has to always be fair with respect to in particular individuals so they have a fair trial. But if my view is you should also care about public safety generally. You should also care about public awareness generally. You should also care about deterrence generally. So for example, no one bats an eye when I did the same number of uh, of, of press conferences, appearances, we did town halls. I did a public service announcement on what? One of the most important pressing issues of our time the opioid crisis. Yes. Mm-hmm. Now you have, you know, I don't know if the president has a commission or doesn't have a commission. Uh, there's a lot of talk there. But talk is actually important in that mm-hmm. regard. We brought cases uh, against pharmacies and against doctors. Yeah. But I also talked about it a lot. And we would have forums where we would, uh, you know, talk about our aggressive law enforcement efforts where appropriate, where doctors or pharmacies were abusing their power. And causing people to get addicted in, in a particular way, and then send them to their deaths sometimes. But also, we would have uh, you know medical professionals there. We did. I did multiple forums with the mother and father of someone who died of an opioid overdose. Mm-hmm. So yeah, we did a lot of talking about that to problem. Your credit so, on that. To your to your yeah. credit. But, but my point. I don't think it's. I don't think it's that different when you're talking about corruption on Wall Street or corruption in Albany. Any sort of huge, I think, public interest problem. For which prosecutors can do something um, you want to encourage the other people, whether it 's the po- local population or law enforcement or politicians or the media, to focus on the problem too because no no major public safety social problem can be solved by prosecution alone so i have to I do have
1: to ask you to stop talking now okay, uh, but I enjoyed uh, I enjoyed chatting with you, and um, my only Complaint is that oh. you didn't consult me on the title of your podcast because I would have suggested how tweeted how how preed it is would be <laughs> would have been great maybe season two okay all right you, you the, beyond the podcast and you see yourself running for office you
0: see yourself practicing law what do you see yourself doing in the future I don't see myself running for office um, look I still have a, a toe or half a foot in the law I'm a distinguished scholar. In residence, very fancy title at NYU Law School. I, I'm going to be doing some other things in the law that not practice in the courtroom, but I care about the law and legal principles. I'm teaching a class, a seminar next uh, spring at NYU on justice. I'm writing a book, which is very, very difficult, harder than I thought to, to write that many words that make sense. I've done that. Yes. It's uh, maybe you can give me some advice about that. Again? Maybe I'll call that how preet it is.
1: Okay. Yeah, that's great. Okay. Keep it in your pocket. It'll work for you. All
0: right. Thank you. Preet. Burrara. Very well done. Yes. Thanks, Dave. And uh, it's, it's good to be with you. Thanks so Thank much. You. Okay. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, part of the CNN Podcast Network. For more episodes of The Axe Files, visit cnn.com slash podcast and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite app. And for more programming from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, visit politics.uchicago.edu.